A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Sophie Hayduck about her debut historical novel, The Flames. Sophie is an award-winning writer and journalist living in East London. She also works as a digital editor for the Sunday Times Audible Short Story Award, and is Associate Director of The Word Factory. In this episode, we discuss Flipping the Canvas, where the artist's muses take centre stage, listening and observing people to create the details of side characters, and the key to staying positive on days of doubt. But first, here's Sophie with an extract from The Flames. Then Edith experiences the tipping point, a moment of balance before the descent, the sensation manifesting itself first in her belly. She puts her hand to her stomach, desperate, scared that somehow the baby is in danger that it is all her fault. Why is she being so reckless? She remembers, then, that she has been pushed to the edge by the people she loves most. It takes less than half an hour for the wheel to complete its circuit. In that time, she has thought of death and love, of blood and betrayal, and where her loyalties lie. Who can we trust in this world? Edith still hasn't a clue. She begins walking again. Where else can she go? She feels as if she were a homeless rambler, one of these unfortunate types who have frittered everything away and must wander the streets with no chance of redemption or return. She is sure she's mistaken for such a figure too, grubby as she has become, shivering and shaking. She warms her belly, thinking only of the baby, of its emerging limbs and eyes closed against the darkness inside her. Edith approaches the market. Stalls are closing up for the evening, men and boys packing away the produce, piling up crates. She runs her hands over wrinkled fruit and meagre vegetables. The prices sky high. One for a pretty girl down on her luck. A man says, putting his hand beneath his stall and pulling out an orange. He holds it out and she is transfixed. Edith sits down. He produces a knife to peel it. She's so empty and the juice is so sweet. It's rare. As she is leaving, she touches a stack of tall, brittle firewood, the only type that can be sourced during this sad war, and imagine and imagines the flames that will consume it, given time. They promise so much. Life-giving warmth and destruction. 
a line that is so terribly fine. Hi, Sophie. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to talking about the flames with you. Hi, Chloe. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Can you start by giving us a brief outline of the plot of your novel? So for anybody who's ever heard of the artist Egon Schiele, he was a very controversial, charismatic young artist who created fantastic, uh, provocative uh, works of art back in Vienna more than 100 years ago. Uh, I first got to know Egon Schiele when I was a student and was really seduced by his fantastic artworks. And the, the Flames is really about the four women who were most influential in his life. So we have uh, Adele Harms, who is one of the sisters who gets to know uh, the young artist when he moves into an apartment across the street from them in Vienna. She is the sister of Edith Harms. And between them, these two young women kind of vie for the artist's attention. Uh, there is also Gertrude Schiller, who is the artist's little sister, and she poses for her brother in the nude, uh, which is a detail that really sparked my imagination. And then there is Vali Nurzel, who is a young woman who Schiller is rumoured to have met in the studio of Gustav Klimt. So there are these four women um, all of whom modelled for Sheila and all of whom had really different lives and very dynamic, overlapping stories. So I really wanted to find a way to give each of them the opportunity to tell those stories. And I think the result is the flames. And they really do have such incredible stories, each of these women. When I was reading your author's note, I got the impression that your inspiration for the flames is almost a bit like a puzzle, all these kind of pieces coming together. So can you speak a bit about how that inspiration began and what it was that inspired you with these, that made you want to write about these women in particular? Yeah, so I'm really lucky because I know the exact date that the idea for this novel came into my life. It was the 10th of January and it was 2015, which sounds like an incredibly long time ago, but you know very well how slow the world of publishing works. Uh, so I was at the Courtauld Gallery at Somerset House and I'd been invited to an exhibition by my friend who was visiting from London. Uh, uh, visiting London from her home in Yorkshire that weekend and she invited me along to the show I think it was the final weekend the last opportunity to see this incredible exhibition and I really almost didn't go and I'm so so glad that I did because as soon as I walked into the exhibition space I, I was really uh, taken with these incredible portraits that I saw all around me and I realized that the women who I, who I was looking at, and as an aside, the exhibition was called The Radical Nude. So that gives you some hint of, um, you know, the, the position that these women were in. Um, it, was, it was indeed very radical and the artworks were very provocative. And I, I realized straight away that these women were seen very explicitly, but they, their stories had never been heard. And, you know, I was looking into the frames, I was looking into their eyes and wondering what their relationship was with the artist, what their relationship was with each other, the jealousies that might have existed between them, um, the ways that their lives overlapped. 
And it was in the exhibition space that day that I first discovered the name Edith Harms. I realized that she was the artist's wife. And I, I discovered a really tragic detail about her life. Um, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but um, she, you know, she, it was very sad the way that her life ended. And initially I thought maybe I'd tell a story about Egon Sheila through her eyes and that we'd get to know her um, and, and see these details about his life in this way. And it was only when I went home and did some research that I discovered she had a sister who was incredibly dynamic and strong-willed and interesting. And then of course, we I discovered the other two women and I just felt like there was this lovely um, structure that was emerging for me. So actually it feels like um, it happened very quickly and almost like a kind of, it felt for me like a thunderbolt moment in the gallery. It just straight away, I knew that I had this idea um, and that I, I could potentially develop it. And I think within a matter of weeks, I had the structure, I had the storyline, I knew where the kind of plot points were going to be. So really, looking back it happened very very quickly and I guess the slow part was you know not just writing it but working out how to be an author what time mm. of day you work best and you know how many words even is a novel meant to be I certainly didn't know then that a kind of average novel was about 80,000 words um, I didn't know how to get an agent that was a complete mystery I knew nothing about the publishing process, which um, I got a publishing deal two years before my book actually came out. So, you know, that's a huge amount of time, you know, when you think about the evolution of this, uh, mm. of this novel. So it's really, it's really interesting. But I think for me that the idea came very quickly and almost kind of fully formed. That's so interesting. I was wondering whether you, you mentioned that there were such little kind of snapshots about their life when you were in the gallery. So did you have an impression that when you started to write, there wasn't going to be much background? Or did you feel like, okay, I'm going to start writing this book, I'll do my research, and maybe I'll discover more about their lives? Did you, did you kind of, were you disappointed that there wasn't much information out there? Or was that almost liberating that you had the, the canvas, as it were, to, to write their story instead? Absolutely that. So I think there was there was sufficient biographical information about each of the women. Um, I, I, I knew their names, which was a massive bonus because for lots of women who are painted throughout history, their names are not known or they're anonymous. So it was wonderful to have their names. It was wonderful to have the bones of their stories, um, how they lived, their family situation, uh, you know, details like this that that really gave me um, a kind of outline of their lives and who they might have been but I think really it was the it was the artwork that gave me the most information about their personalities and not only how how they were captured by Egon Schiele and he is or was an expressionist artist which means that he really tried to reveal the inner the inner workings of a of a sitter he wanted not just to paint them as they were, but to really capture elements of their personality and their character. And I think he's done this incredibly well in 
all his um, artworks of the women that I wrote about. So I saw them through his eyes. And I also, the more I looked at these paintings and drawings, I also really could pick up so much of their personality, how they presented themselves, how they revealed themselves. You know, often they're completely naked and whether they look comfortable with that, whether they're smirking or smiling or turning their face away or, you know, all these, all these details gave me so much information about their character. And once I had those, I could kind of then slot them into the aspects of their relationships with each other. So I realized that a portrait I'd been looking at for a long time since I was a student, I had it kind of a postcard of it taped to my wall at university. And I'd looked at this woman probably every day for the best part of a year. And I'd never questioned who she was to Egon Schiele. Um, and it was only a decade later that I realized that she was the artist's sister-in-law. You know, she's there, she's posing in her stockings. She's got this incredibly intense, seductive look on her face. And I think when you realize that there's this dynamic between the artist and the sitter, that is one perhaps that you wouldn't have imagined or that you can make assumptions that there would be some tensions there. You know, I wanted to know how Egon's wife, Edith, felt about her sister posing for her husband in this way. You know, these things aren't neutral. And I think it was really interesting for me to be able to pick apart um, the aspects of these women's relationships and where the jealousies might have been and, you know, where they might have betrayed themselves and each other. Mm, because that rivalry is such a central part of the particularly that um, in particularly the first section of the book um and and I think the one one near the end when we're uh, we're with Edith so to know that you have kind of invented that rivalry is is incredible really because there are the way you kind of write I guess the facts of their life and you weave them into the things that you've invented yourself it's completely seamless like there's no way anyone unless they knew that the individuals would be able to pick apart what is your invention and what is actually historical fact so I think you yeah. achieved that incredibly well that's really nice to hear and I feel like I feel like it's it's not such a gigantic leap you know I feel like I've I've definitely I've definitely taken a creative license and I've made up this element of the dynamic between the two sisters and injected rivalry into their story. But um, just from the facts of how society would have been then, uh, that Adele was the older sister, she would have had an expectation that she would marry first. Uh, Edith as the younger sister was certainly very shy and uncomfortable in the portraits the artist made of her. So even though I've taken this creative leap, I definitely think that um, I feel I kind of feel reassured and confident and comfortable in the leaps that I have made because I feel that they're they're grounded in in what could have been possible. So also Adele as an older woman, she said in an interview with Alessandra Camini that she had had an affair with Sheila. And you know, this could be misinterpreted, mistranslated, it could mean that she'd, you know, had an encounter with him or that she'd 
he'd been she'd been courted by him or it could mean that she physically slept with her sister's husband you know there's there's so many nuances there and there's so many questions that are sparked from um these details so I don't feel like I've done the women any disservice by mm. taking these imaginative leaps um and I hope that I've kept as close to the story as as is possible whilst also hopefully you know creating a, a dynamic uh, plot. You mentioned that when you were kind of writing these women, they all have very different lives. Obviously, they all have a relationship with Egon. They're all his subjects in terms of his art. How did you find kind of writing these four distinctive voices? Does that something that came easily to you, or did you, and did you find that kind of just through their sheer personality, you were able to approach their voices in a very different way? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I do think, looking back, that they were all instantly their own character. Um, their voices were just incredibly clear to me, as if almost as if I was interviewing them. Um, I, I'm a journalist, I'm a trained journalist, so I've, I've spent a lot of my career tracking down people with unusual stories and interviewing them and then putting... Um, their words into kind of first-person pieces. So absorbing what they say and kind of regurgitating it in a way that makes it an interesting story. So in a way, I felt like I had the ability to do that with these characters. I listened to, to what they were saying and I tried to see things um, from their perspectives. And then I kind of took those voices and tried to be as true to how I felt um, they were communicating those things as possible. So they all straight away just had these um, really clear ways of presenting themselves. And it was it was a really interesting process to, to kind of channel that in a way. When I was reading it, one of the things that struck me was that as much as it's a story of exploitation, it's also about kind of different forms of love. But mm -hmm. there's a line in it where um, Gertie promises that she's never going to fall in love because she sees it as losing part of herself or killing the best parts of herself, I think she says. <laughs> um, but there's never a point in the novel where Egon overshadows them. They're very much they're very much the focus of the novel. So why was it important to you to keep the focus on these four women instead of naturally kind of writing about Egon's career and his art yeah I think that's interesting and I I think deliberately that uh for me Egon was a shadowy character I wanted to keep him in the shadows and I wanted him to be somebody who changed um in different lights who you got a different perspective on each time you know sometimes I think as readers we feel quite sympathetic towards him other times we completely despise him and are really um you know quite uh just annoyed by his behavior and perhaps disgusted by his behavior and I think that that's for me was an important part of his character development is that he's never just one thing and when it came to the women I realized that really their sides of the story had never been told before so there are a couple of books about Egon Schiele, which are fantastic and do a really good job of telling the story of his life, um, other historical fiction. Um, and, but 
I always felt that uh, there hadn't been one that really shone a light on the muses and their emotional connections in this way. And I felt that in a way I wanted to give them the opportunity to um, flip the canvas, so to speak. So they almost got the chance to paint a portrait of the artist for the first time. So instead of him painting all these very explicit and erotic and sensual paintings of them, um, you know, depicted in ways that they perhaps didn't have much say over, they got to paint a portrait of the artist from their perspective. And in doing so, I hope that, you know, he becomes, if not a particularly sympathetic character, I hope he is still a compelling one, just because I think he was very troubled, but I think um, he was also very talented. Mm. You're right, we do see kind of different sides of him through these narratives. One thing I really loved about your writing, which I thought was so skillful, was your characterization. Even obviously the, the focus uh, for most parts of the novel are your your four women, but the um, even the kind of side characters, which we meet briefly, are really their kind of personality is is told in a very concise way which I which I loved and I have to read out this quote because it just summed up um your your skill at this um so uh Adele and Edith's mother is very judgmental when it comes to meeting suitors and uh this quote it says for Mutti it makes a reality that much harder to swallow she cannot legitimately point out this suitor's flaws until she has made his acquaintance, identified them all and thrown in a few more for good measure. And that's at the point where she, she's unable to meet a suitor and she's disappointed because that, she, can't, she can't point out his, uh, his flaws. I just absolutely <laughs> love that line because it tells you so much about her. How did you approach the characterization of these kind of more minor characters to really make them feel real? And then obviously, these characters perhaps you didn't even have any reference points for. Yeah, that's right. So again, it's it's really interesting because it's hard to kind of look back and almost pick apart why or how you did something with a character. It all just feels like it evolves quite naturally. But I guess really for observations like that, uh, the line that you've just read out to, to ring to really connect with people. I guess there has to be some element of truth in them. So people recognize something that they might at times have thought uh, or that they, you know, and I think you almost have to listen very closely as an author to your own thoughts, perhaps even the ones that are a bit more subconscious uh, or unsavory. Sometimes you really have to think, oh, I'm thinking that really judgmental thing about someone, that'd be great for a character. Uh, and, you know, you also have to really people watch and people listen and you're almost collecting these little snippets and putting them in a jar so that you can use them for later. And I'm sure I'm sure you do it and I'm sure lots of other authors do it. You know, you're constantly looking for these really specific um, details that you notice in yourself or others that you think, well, if I'm thinking this and other people are going to think in the same way and it, you know I think at that moment you know that people hopefully are going to connect with lines like that um, but yeah thank you. So you've mentioned already that there's a perspective 
in the novel, which is kind of uh, a more modern perspective. So it's the, the late 60s where we meet um, an older Adele. And mm -hmm. there's a moment where she's uh, in a gallery and she says she's fed up or, or she asked why she has to keep listening to men telling her how things were in the past. Mm -hmm. And your novel really does feel like a kind of conscious decision to amplify your the female subjects and also the female perspective in terms of art was that you kind of answering back to a kind of I guess a very a very male skewed perspective of the art world and kind of art history yeah I think I think that's right um I think consciously and subconsciously I wanted to subvert the male gaze which obviously women and these women in particular have been subjected to for more than a century. Um, I wanted to reclaim that narrative and really give these, you know, silenced muses the opportunity to tell their sides of the story. And I think so much of history is uh, presented to us from, from this male gaze and from the male uh, mouth. And, it's, it's really important that, you know, these steps are taken to, to, really, to really reclaim as much as we can and just give these women the opportunity to, to share a side of the story that hasn't been heard before. Mm -hmm. So your structure is quite interesting because it's in individual sections, but each woman's story does overlap. They kind of meet each other or they have interactions and as an element to some of them where because you're only getting one side of the story you don't find out the other side until much later on in the book there's an event in the in the first section of the book which kind of confounds the reader and Adele and it's not until you reach near the end of the book that you see why certain things have happened um so when did you decide to Obviously, you've mentioned already that you were originally going to write it just from Edith's perspective. When did you mm -hmm. decide to open it up and tell it from all of their perspectives? And kind of how did you go about structuring the novel in a way that overlaps all the stories? Yeah, I think uh, my first instinct to tell the story of, of Egon Schiele through his wife's perspective was probably a sensible one. Mm -hmm. It would have been much uh, simpler and a much less demanding exercise. Uh, unfortunately, I just read a wonderful book uh, in the days before I went to the exhibition called Mrs. Hemingway by Naomi Wood. And it's the lives of, it's a, it's a novel about the lives of the four wives of Ernest Hemingway done in a structure that tells you a little bit about this fantastic writer, controversial writer, in a way um, as seen through, through these women who were all very different. And I think perhaps if I hadn't read Mrs. Hemingway at that very crucial point um, in the evolution of this novel, then I might not have thought about doing, structuring the novel in this way. Um, so it was probably, I think it's been a great challenge to do it, to do, to have four voices and to have them overlapping. It felt a bit like a jigsaw puzzle at times. Um, it's people, some of the feedback that I get on the novel, which has surprised me is that oh, it's an ambitious novel. It's a, I think, yeah, it's because 
it probably was overly arrogant to think that I could do that or overly ambitious to even attempt to weave all that together and I'm sure it added at least a year or two onto um, the writing process just because you go and unpick something and you have to unravel it somewhere else and then you suddenly realize that that person doesn't know that so and so you know and you kind of you tie yourself in knots um, so I think that whilst it was a lovely challenge and something that I don't regret um, it, it was something that perhaps was complicated or just complicated things and with book two I know we're going to talk about um, book two later but um, I did I did try again just to tell one story from one woman and I just couldn't do it you know I just felt like you really needed these um, multiple perspectives in order to get enough energy and to get enough um, dynamics going between the characters so again I've I've just don't know if it's my my thing or what the way that I think or the way that I write but I, I find that I really need these multiple perspectives in order to to keep everything going mm, I wonder if it's kind of subconsciously a way to keep yourself interested and excited by the writing I know <laughs> yeah. when I when I started uh, writing my second novel I kept thinking right I'm going to make this easier I'm going to make the, the structure <laughs> easier or the story easier it never oh, works yeah. like that <laughs> oh no your brain's like oh yeah this is easy and then it's like this is boring yeah <laughs> jewelry isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Definitely. So what made you decide to include 
the prologue and the interludes from the 1960s um, when Adele is an, an older woman? Was that something that came later in the writing process? Um, <clears throat> that is something, as I recall now, that came during the research process. So um, quite quickly, I think back in 2015, I did go to Vienna as part of my research trip and, you know, my initial trying to work out how this novel was going to come together. And I spoke to a really wonderful uh, Sheila scholar, uh, Christian Bauer, and I was quizzing him a little bit about Adele and the other models. And I asked him, you know, I couldn't find in any of the books anything about what had happened to Adele later in life. I knew that she didn't die young. I knew that she lived um, to be older just because um, I'd read interviews uh, that she'd done with Alessandra Camini as an older woman. And he told me that Adele had died when she was 78, that she'd been penniless, she had no family, she had no children, and that she'd been practically living on the streets of Vienna when she died. And this detail for me just sparked um, so much, so many questions, because you look at these beautiful paintings that Egon Schiele made of Adele Harms, and she has the whole world at her feet. I mean, she's beautiful, she's educated, she comes from a good family. You know, she's she could have had her pick of men, it, it's, I have no doubt about it. And, and yet, 50 years later, she ended up with absolutely nothing. And I think I'm, I'm really fascinated by uh, these slippage points in time when people's lives shift, you know, where they go from having an expectation that things are going to be a certain way, and there's no reason why that would ever be any other way. And then a decade later, they're completely different people, and they could never have envisioned how those chain of events would um, kind of unfurl. And Adele, for me, really encapsulated this, this kind of way of thinking. And I wanted to find the point at which her life had slipped out of control. And I wanted to kind of chart the way in which she tried to, tried to find redemption as an older woman in the final days of her life. And how I was really interested, really, in how she might have carried perhaps guilt around or her own grief at the death of her sister and the man that I suppose that she was in love with um, and so straight away the opening scene where she's knocked down by a younger woman you know cycling through this district of Vienna where, where Adele as a young woman had first encountered the artist that was always the opening scene that was just this really strong image I had in my head of who Adele would have been <clears throat> at, at this kind of later stage in her life. Um, and from that, this just relationship kind of developed between the older woman and the younger woman. And I thought it was really important in lots of ways to have this setting in the 1960s, um, just to give Sheila a little bit of historical context. There were so many great shifts that were happening in the 60s anyway for women, um, so many more freedoms that, I thought it would be interesting to look back on him um, from Ava's perspective and to be able to put a little bit about who he was in context so that it was uh, had a little bit more depth. So I think that's why that's why that kind of um, structure emerged there. 
and then without realizing it and it was only when I started working with my editor that she pointed out that in fact there were these kind of four frames and you very much got you know four four women in their frames and then the sections in the gallery between Adele and Eva were the kind of interludes in which we got a little bit more perspective so that's how that emerged Mm. and I think those sections as well like you say they give them the the context they also show that these artworks um and Egon Schiele have endured time you know they've been significant in in the art world that it hasn't just been the kind of that short period that you cover in those women's lives with him it's it's gone on and on so yeah I definitely think it's a it it was an interesting uh, kind of addition to the story yeah I'm really glad that you liked it I felt like it was important but you know I never know how people are going to respond to that. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to talk about your writing career really because you've got um you're the associate director of the word factory which is um a literary organization which people might be aware of and you also mm-hmm. won the empress prize for new writers impress prize and you've also had an amazing journalism career so are you able to speak about your kind of your journey into writing fiction and how that led you on to getting an agent and a book deal I know you said you were kind of naive or or kind of you had no idea how to get one so maybe you could speak about (laughs) how that came about yeah I think again the beauty of being published I don't know if you find the same thing, but you almost get to look back on the last decade of your career or your life and you get to join the dots in a new way. So you get to say, oh, yeah, well, I was gravitating. Of course, I went into journalism because I was gravitating (laughs) towards writing. And of course, I didn't get that job because I was meant to, you know, invest more time in, you know, working on my novel. So I've had I've definitely had lots of that in the last few months. I've kind of I feel like I've had to. I've been given the opportunity to rewrite a little bit about my life and my story, um, which has been a really strange process. I don't know if that's something that other people, other debut authors have experienced. But um, looking back now, I can see that I always kind of gravitated towards very personal first person um, stories. I always wanted to speak to people who something unusual had happened to them, Um, And I'd kind of track them down and I'd convince them to talk to me. And then I'd ask all these really, you know, very personal questions about some of the most challenging experiences of their lives. And as I mentioned earlier, I'd then kind of regurgitate that in a way. And I'd write it up in the first person. um, So literally kind of putting myself through this experience in order to uh, tell it in the most kind of compelling way. And that really felt like much of what I did with historical fiction. I'm in awe of anybody who sits down to write a novel and doesn't have a ready-made plot and doesn't have all these characters with their weird quirks and, you know, even the names. I could never have made up names that were as perfect for these women as the ones that they already had, you know, and I just think it's, it's, I'm, I'm really, people say to me, oh, you've done so much research. It's really impressive. I could never do what you do, but I could really never do what, you know, <laughs> other authors do, which is just create all of this wonderful stuff in their mind. Um, I think I'd fall at the first hurdle. So all my experience in journalism definitely set me 
up for writing historical fiction and biographical fiction where you're taking um, real people's lives and you're kind of reimagining how how they would have felt and how they would have lived. Um, and yes, you mentioned the Impress Prize, which was um, an incredible privilege to to win that. Uh, I never expected to to get to the, into that position, but again, it was a massive boost at a stage in my writing career when I had no idea um, if what I was doing was if I was on the right track, if I was any good, if I had um, any potential. And I think at that moment, there's just this kind of tiny little voice in your head saying, oh, OK, somebody has really enjoyed this and somebody has seen the potential and you should totally keep going. So that that felt wonderful. And it was at that point that I had interest from really um, incredible agents and I did more work on the manuscript because it wasn't finished at that point. Um, and I worked with uh, <clears throat> people who do editorial reports, Sally OJ, who is wonderful. She gave me some fantastic feedback. And that was all before I um, queried my dream agent, who is Juliet Mushens. And I kind of pulled together the package, you know, as well as I could. I polished it all a thousand times and I checked, you know, my, submit, my submission letter and my first three chapters. And, you know, it was when she said yes, straight away within, you know, a matter of hours that I, I kind of, you know, really started to feel quite scared because I was like, <laughs> oh, wow, you know, this is, this is going somewhere that I didn't, I didn't anticipate, you know, and I think you have all the hope that um, something would unfurl this way, but I don't think I don't know if I ever felt that way with my journalism career. It never flowed or it never kind of progressed in, in such a kind of meaningful and um, kind of easy way. It sounds like a weird word to use, but um, I always just felt like I was on a little bit of a, you know, a nice slide with the book stuff. Everybody always seemed to enjoy it and like it and want it. And it just went from strength to strength. And I was always so grateful to, um, to be part of that and in the middle of that because you can't you know all debut authors know all authors know that that's something that you can't control how people are going to respond to your work um, so yeah when I got Juliet as my agent I was completely delighted she put it out on submission I think after a couple of months we did a little bit of work together and that's when it got picked up by Doubleday, who, again, are complete dream publishers. So um, I feel like I've had a really nice experience of publishing. Um, there's definitely been lots of lows along the way. There has been rejections. There has been self-doubt. There has been complete U-turns when you realise that you've backed yourself into a cul-de-sac and you really want to get out. <laughs> um, so it's not been completely plain sailing, but I just... I think all of that just adds to um, your experience as a debut, somebody who's both incredibly grateful to be in this position and um, incredibly grateful to be telling these kind of stories. And yeah, it all, it all just gets you to a place where, you know, you can look back and think it's such a privilege to, to be in this position. So I wondered whether you could share your top three tips for other writers or aspiring writers 
yes I can so I think it was Sylvia Plath who said um I love my rejection slips they show me I try and my number one tip would be embrace rejection because I don't think you can get anywhere as a writer until you absolutely um absolutely embrace rejection and for me that meant um I remember you know entering a few competitions first chapter opening chapter competitions I think I entered one um I didn't get anywhere I really wanted to win it was my dream competition to win I didn't get anywhere felt terrible didn't write for two months you know this kind of really skewed way of thinking when I was right back at the beginning of my writing you know process and I remember reading or hearing about this wonderful concept which was um, aim for 100 rejections and this really like spoke to me so I <laughs> thought right next year I'm going to enter everything I'm going to enter all the first chapter competitions I can find I'm going to um, you know build up a list of 100 agents and you know work my way through them I'm really gonna keep a folder of the rejections and kind of feel proud when um, I get another one because it shows me I try um, and it was off the back of that that I entered I think about almost a dozen um, first chapter competitions and straight away I got you know long listed for six shortlisted for four and I ended up winning the impress prize I would never have entered the Impress Prize if I hadn't been taking on this attitude because I probably just wouldn't have, you know, it might have slipped my mind or, oh, you know, and I just think that was something that for me really um, changed my career, changed my attitude. Um, and really I made connections throughout that entire process, which I, I still, you know, have friendships with people who were judges um, Rebecca F. John, for example, we're going to be appearing. She was a judge for one of the short uh, first chapter competitions and we'll be appearing at Hay Together in the summer. Um, you know, so just these connections that you make by changing your attitude a little bit, I think, can have such a positive impact on everything. Right. And did you want two more? Yeah, oh, gosh, two more. Right. So, <laughs> um, the next one would be to trust your own journey as an author. I think we are all guilty of um, compare and contrast and we're all looking at what everybody else gets. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter what anybody, you know, what you've got. It's always what the person ahead of you. Oh, you know, but so and so got spreaders and you know it's all mm. these kind of things that if everyone social wants media spreaders <laughs> everybody wants a spread absolutely and you know these are beautiful things and they're all um they're all these great extras but they're cherry they're the cherry mm. on the cake of um publication which is just such a wonderful goal goal in itself so I would really say that if you can um trust your own journey trust that it won't be like anybody else's and just try as hard as you can through whatever method works best for you not to get kind of caught in that churn of comparison because <clears throat> it really does um do so much damage and I just think um you know we're all we're all on very different paths as, as debuts and at the end of the day you're always going to get somebody who your book is going to be their favorite book and it's going to speak to people and it's going to be on the shelves and I just think we're incredibly um, lucky and I think it was this kind of moves on to my third point it was Anne Lamott uh, who said 
when you look back at the end of your life, I think you're going to pinch yourself that you got to be one of the people who did it. And for me, this is my third point, which is enjoy it. You know, like publishing a book is a beautiful thing. It's such a joy. Um, <clears throat> if you can hold on to the kind of good elements and not get completely lost in the rabbit hole, um, I think, you know, you get to be incredibly proud of what you've achieved the hours of investment of your time that you've put into something that you didn't know whether it would pay off or not. Um, and I think the fact that it did pay off and that we've all come as far as we've come as debuts is just something that we should all really embrace. And um, I try and I try and remind myself that publishing a book is not is not a process by which I want to be made happy, but mm -hmm. it's a process by which I want to expand my potential and expand my horizons. Um, and so if ever I do feel a bit sad one day because something's caught me out, I just think, no, you know, like I'm I'm totally, my horizons are, are broadening. And that's for me was was the kind of goal of, of getting into this position in the first place. Mm. I'm gonna get that printed on a t-shirt. I think that's great. <laughs> <laughs> get me one as well, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So can you think of some comparison novels we always do this in publishing when you're yeah. pitching your book you have to give your kind of comp titles so can you think of some that would kind of fit well with the flames well yes I think I've already mentioned Mrs Hemingway by Naomi Wood which I would highly recommend it's about the four wives of Ernest Hemingway um, one of the books that inspired me to write the flames that I read when I was a teenager was Girl with a Pearl Earring by Tracy Chevalier. Um, I never dreamed when I read that book that I'd be doing something similar, you know, looking at a portrait, looking at the work of an artist and retelling the story. But I think that teenage me would have been so proud and impressed that I'd taken that step. Um, I really love Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. I wish I could be anywhere near as uh, talented as she is, but I think what she did with that book, um, you know, taking the very um, emotional story of Shakespeare's son and how that impacted the family was just so brave and so well executed. Um, and another book that really uh, had a huge impact on me when I was younger was called I Was Amelia Earhart by Jane Mendelssohn. And that's a book about the um, American aviator, uh, Amelia Earhart, who, uh, whose plane disappeared um, while she was uh, circumnavigating the globe. Uh, and it was a reimagining of what happened to her um, in the days following the plane crash. Um, and I think it was at that point that I realized that you were allowed, you were allowed to tell, take the stories of, of real life people and reimagine them. And that's something that I carried with me um, into my career as a writer. So I feel very inspired by, um, by that novel as well. Can you give us briefly a little hint about what you're writing next? Yeah, so my little hint is I'm, I'm pretty much same same but different so it's uh, another artist it's uh the women in his life who um fueled his creativity fueled his greatness um it's set in a different country so we're not in austria anymore but we're we're still in europe um and it's the same time period but we get you know we get to move uh through 
through time a little bit further just because he lived to be um, a much older man than Egon Schiele who died so tragically young. Um, so it's been it's been interesting getting to know other women and another artist uh, in the same way. Um, one who I don't think is is as charismatic as Egon Schiele or as controversial, um, but the story is is just as compelling. And I think there's elements to the women's lives um, that are just absolutely fascinating and, and their side of the story has never been told before, which I'm gobsmacked about. So I feel really lucky that I get to be um, the person to bring this, bring this to the fore. Well, I'm really excited to see what you write next, Sophie. And thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Clary. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And yeah, and I love your work. I love your book. I love your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. That was Sophie Hayduck talking about her debut historical novel, The Flames, which is out now and available to buy. Before I go, let me just tell you about two events I've got coming up where I'm hosting this podcast, Confessions of a Debut Novelist, live. First, I'm going to be talking to three authors at the Being a Writer Festival, hosted by the Literary Consultancy on June the 28th. Then on July the 22nd, I'm going to be talking to Louise Morrish, about her historical novel at Jericho Writers Summer Festival. Both of these events are virtual, so you can join anywhere in the world and even ask questions. And if you're interested in hearing me talk in person about my novel, The Sea Women, I'll be at the Margate Bookie on Thursday the 2nd of June. Tickets for all these events are available to buy and I'll put all the details in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it would be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.